Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Kristen Diebel. If I haven't had the chance to meet you before, I'm on the leadership team here at Novation, and it is my um, privilege and responsibility to share with you this morning. Um, we have been in a series since Christmas called Kingdom Come. We have been working our way through the Gospel of Luke and looking at the life of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus and just how we can apply that to our life. And we're gonna continue in that series this morning. Um, we're gonna be in Luke chapter six. I've titled today's message, A Tale of Two Kingdoms. And we're gonna be looking at this specific teaching of Jesus. He has gathered his disciples and a large crowd of people, and he begins teaching them. And this um, teaching in Luke 6 is actually kind of a condensed version of the Sermon on the Mount that we find in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Um, so we're gonna be pulling out of there, looking at what Jesus is teaching his people. We're gonna be looking at four different things. We are gonna be talking about the priorities of the kingdom of God. We're gonna be talking about the practices of the people of God, the pathway towards integrity, and the power of obedience. And I would just like to note that Scott taught me you use alliteration. So that's four Ps for you, so you can remember. <laughs> um, but before we dive in, will you guys just take a minute and let's pray together. God, thank you so much for our church family. Thank you for this place where we gather together weekly to build one another up and just be encouraged in our walk with you and reminded of the good news that is the gospel. I just ask for your presence to overwhelm any of our, our thoughts and distractions, anything that might be weighing on our mind this morning. Help us to set all of that aside and just be very open to what you want to do in each one of us this morning. In your name, amen. All right, how many of you have ever had a great coach? Maybe it was Little League, maybe you played high school, college sports. Raise your hand if you've had a great coach. Okay, that's, that's a fair number of hands. Who has had a terrible coach? I feel like that's actually more hands. That's kind of sad. Well, I think a coach will make or break a program, right? Like the, whatever, whatever kind of culture the coach sets, it filters down to the team and the program, right? My brother, he's a couple years younger than me, and he played tackle football when he was little, you know, like elementary through middle school before he went on to play high school. And one year, he had this coach. This guy was something else. I'm not kidding you. He would have the boys show up at the practice field a little bit before he would get there, and the kids were supposed to watch for his car to pull in to, like, the practice field parking lot, and when they saw him pull in, they started slow clap, and faster and faster and faster. So by the time the coach got there, the boys are, like, crazy cheering, right? That's how he started the practice. Well, then this team was actually terrible. Like, they never won... They didn't have a good season, but finally towards the end of one of the, a, a game at, towards the end of the season, they didn't lose, but they tied. They tied the game. The coach had my brother and the, the other boys lift him up and carry him off the field in victory because they tied the game. I'm not kidding about this. Coaches make or break a program, right? We tend to judge a coach when a new coach takes over a, a college sports team or a professional sports team. We watch the progress of that team. How, do they win? Do the players reach their potential? And then we make a judgment about that coach based on the success of the program, right? 
Well, Jesus comes on the scene in this chapter as like the ultimate head coach, and he is casting a brand new vision. It's really a countercultural vision for how people should live. He's turning everything upside down on its head. Everything that comes naturally to us and, and that kind of culture tells us, hey, if you want to be successful, if you want to win, this is what you do. And Jesus is like, no, no, I'm going to show you a better way. And that's what we're going to look at today. We are going to look at what Jesus says and how it is so countercultural, even for us today. So we're going to dive in. We're going to begin by reading out of Luke 6. We're going to be reading um, chapter, or verses 20 to 22, and then verses 24 to 26. Jesus begins teaching, and he says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Then he goes on in verses 24 through 26, and he says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. We are going to take these, these six verses, and we are going to pull out of them the priorities of the kingdom of God versus the priorities of the kingdom of the world. Now, before we even go there, I want to note one thing that I think is really important. When we read these verses, we read Jesus say, blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you to one group, and then woe to you, woe to you, woe to you to the other group. And I think what we tend to do is interpret that as, okay, Jesus is blessing this group, and he's cursing this group. But that's not, in fact, what Jesus is doing. The phrase, woe to you, it's not a curse. It is an exclamation of grief. Jesus is saying, like, I'm sorry for you. If this is your reality, there's one translation that instead of woe to you, it says sorrow awaits you. So keep in mind that Jesus isn't blessing one group of people and cursing the other. No, he's just stating reality. He's just stating what is true. So let's look at the four priorities of the kingdom of the world. We're going to start there. The first priority that we see here is power. Jesus says, woe to you who are rich, and riches or wealth equates to power. The people with the money are the people with the power. It was true then, and it's true today, right? So the first, the first priority in the kingdom of the world is power. The second priority is comfort. Jesus goes on and says, woe to you who are well-fed. The, in the Greek, that term, well-fed, it actually means like a gluttonous desire to be filled up and satisfied, to be materially and physically comfortable. The second priority is comfort. The third priority in the kingdom of God is success. Jesus says, woe to you who laugh now. Now, this isn't like laughter with joy. This word has a connotation of like arrogant gloating. This is like the party that you have when you win the election to like gloat over the defeat of your opponent. It's success. That's the third priority of the kingdom of the world. 
And then the fourth priority in the kingdom of the world is recognition. Jesus finishes this list of woe to you by saying, woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. This is like the need for the approval of man, the need to be recognized. That's the fourth priority in the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's another thing I want to point out here. Jesus is not saying that a Christ follower cannot fall into one of these four categories. That's actually not what he's saying, and we know that that's true because we can see throughout Bible history, church history, and just in our own lives, we know Christ followers who maybe have some wealth, some power, some comfort, some success, some recognition, right? A couple weeks ago when Scott was teaching, he, he noted that 90, we, the, the poorest person here or watching online, in this, in this country, the poorest of us is better off than 93% of the world. That puts every single one of us into the category of power, right? So Jesus is not saying that no Christ follower can ever have these things. But what he is saying is that for the Christian, these priorities do not define us. These priorities, we can take them or leave them. If God brings them into our life, we can enjoy them, we can use them for the glory of God, but we're not going to be ruined if we lose them. So before we dive into looking at the priorities of the kingdom of the world, I just think it's important for us to, to make that distinction. All right, let's look at the kingdom of God. What are the priorities of the kingdom of God? Jesus is painting a very contrasting picture to those four priorities of the kingdom of the world. Instead of power, Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor. And in the same way that wealth equals power, poverty often equals weakness. So the first priority in the kingdom of God is weakness. The second priority in the kingdom of God is sacrifice. Jesus said, blessed are you who hunger now. Blessed are you who are without, who are willing to go without for the sake of another. Sacrifice is the second priority in the kingdom of God. The third priority we see, grief. Jesus said, blessed are you who weep now. The third priority in the kingdom of God is grief. And then finally, the fourth priority, exclusion. Jesus says, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil. Catch this, because of the Son of Man. Not because you're a jerk, right? Not because you're just not being nice, but because you identify with Jesus. The four priorities in the kingdom of God, weakness, sacrifice, grief, and exclusion. Now, how many of you woke up this morning being like, I really hope to experience weak, weakness, sacrifice, grief, and exclusion? Anyone? No, like we don't wake up like that, right? So why are these the priorities of the kingdom of God? And I would say it's because with the blessing that Jesus said, when he says, blessed are you who are poor, look at the second part of the verse. It's because in our weakness, we are reminded that ultimate power belongs to Jesus and the kingdom of God is ours, right? When he says, blessed are you who hunger now, it's because ultimately we're going to be satisfied. Blessed are you who can weep now, who can enter into grief now because ultimate joy is ours. And then blessed are you when you're excluded because verse 23, which we didn't have up on the screen, but in verse 23, Jesus says, when that happens, when that day comes, rejoice because your reward in heaven is great. 
Um, another thing that I was really noticing as I was studying for this is that Jesus, the Savior, embodies all four of these priorities. He was born into weakness. He was born in a cave surrounded by animals. He was born with no position, with no money, with nothing that would draw us to him. He was born in weakness. He was the ultimate sacrifice. He died for us while we were still sinners. He was the ultimate sacrifice. Isaiah 53 is a Old Testament prophecy about the coming Messiah. And in Isaiah 53, Jesus is described as a man familiar with grief, a man of many sorrows, a man who was excluded, a man who was rejected. So if we're following Jesus and he embodied these priorities, then we've got to make them our priorities too for the blessing that's to come in them, right? I was um, reading a commentary as I was preparing for this by a man named Michael Wilcock, and he had such great insight into this like tale of two kingdoms, and I just want to read you what he said about this section of scripture. He said, in the life of God's people will be seen, first of all, a remarkable reversal of values. They will prize what the world calls pitiable and suspect what the world thinks desirable. Isn't that good? It's exactly what we're called to. I think if we're honest, all of us are aware of the propensity of our own hearts to seek after the priorities of the kingdom of the world. There is a draw to them. And I want to share with you, just from my own life, how I've seen the truth of that. Um, My husband Joel and I got married when we were very young. We were both still in school. We were working the kind of jobs that you work just to pay your rent. And after we got married, we were living in this little duplex with like dirt cheap rent. And it wasn't long before I was like, I want to buy a house. Like, I don't like this duplex anymore. When can we buy a house? And so probably about a year after we got married, maybe a little earlier even, we closed on this little teeny tiny house in Westminster, this little two-bedroom, one-bathroom, 900-square-foot home. And it was 2004, so we were able to finance that house 100%. It's not a good idea, I don't recommend it, but that is what we did. And about two months after we closed on that house, which we purchased with both of our incomes, I was like, surprise, we're having a baby. (laughs) And Joel was like, okay, great, this is great news, but what are we gonna do? So we're looking at all the options and we realized like, I just didn't make enough money that it made sense for us to pay for childcare. So when our beautiful firstborn daughter came, I had the privilege of being able to stay at home with her, but we also kind of started on this trajectory where finances were such a burden. We had two more babies in that little teeny tiny two-bedroom house, and then 2008, 2009 happened, and the housing market crashed. And our house that we financed 100%, we were now very upside down on. We could not sell it. The financial burden that we experienced in those early years became a theme that we were just living with in these early years of our marriage. And I felt so trapped, so stuck. This every month was stressful. Every month we were trying to figure out how we were going to make ends meet. And so this was like a deep-rooted theme going on in our life. Well, then I started working. I got my real estate license and I started working. I started building a successful business, and I would close a deal. I'd be at a title company, close a transaction. I would be given a a check, a commission check. I would go from the title company to the bank to deposit that check. And on that drive, I was just like on cloud nine. I felt 
so excited, so like, okay, we're doing this. We are making progress. We are getting out of this hole that we've been in. I would go into the bank, deposit my check, get back into my car. Somewhere on that drive home between the bank and home, I would just kind of sink into a little bit of a, of a funk. I just kind of felt this vague, empty disappointment, and I really couldn't put my finger on it. I wasn't really sure what was going on. I couldn't even like verbalize to Joel what I was feeling. But this kept happening time after time after time. Every time I got a commission check, I experienced this pattern. So I started talking with Joel about it. We started talking with our home group about it. We started just praying about it. And over time, God showed me that that commission check, it represented all of the priorities of the kingdom of the world. It represented power, comfort, success, and recognition. And when I realized that, I was like, you know what? The weight of my hope and expectation can never be sustained by these things over here. So for a minute, I felt good. For a minute, I felt like, yes, things are going good. But the, the weight of my hope was just constantly left wanting because the priorities of the world can never satisfy the longings of our heart. I think Paul wraps this up so beautifully In Philippians 3, Paul is kind of giving a list, a resume, if you will. He's saying, look, if anybody has reason to be confident in and of themselves, it's me. I have, I've checked all the boxes of the kingdom of the world. And guess what? It didn't work. Listen to what he says. I'm going to read you verses 7 and 8 out of chapter 3. Paul says, I once thought that these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. As we understand the infinite value of knowing Jesus, the priorities of the world, our hearts just unravel a little bit from those things. And we recognize like those are nothing in comparison with the goodness of knowing Jesus. So that's the first thing that we see in this passage of Scripture, are the priorities of the kingdom of the world versus the priorities of the kingdom of God. Then Jesus begins, he continues teaching. He spends like the next 15 verses of this passage just talking about how to live in relationship with other people, how to live in community. Now, I'm not going to read all 15 verses, but I've pulled out just two that I think really kind of summarize everything that Jesus was teaching here. So we're going to read Luke 6, verse 35 and 36. It says, But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your father is merciful. So there's three practices that I see here that Jesus is calling us to. And of course, the the scriptures are filled with commands for how Jesus' people are to treat others, are to be in relationship with others. But if we can boil it down to these three things, in most cases, I think we fulfill all of it. So the first practice that Jesus calls us to is radical love, radical love. And the thing I love about Jesus, well, there's many things I love about Jesus, but one of them is that Jesus never, ever calls us to do something that he hasn't already done. 
He practices everything that he preaches. I want to um, take a little snapshot out of John chapter 13 because Jesus exemplifies this kind of radical love so beautifully here. Um, in John 13 chapter one, or verse 1, it says, It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Some other translations say, and Jesus was prepared to show his disciples the extent of his love. So I'm going to set the scene here. It's the night that Jesus is arrested and then taken to be crucified. And before that happens, he gathers his disciples and he takes them, gathers them together, and they're going to have the Last Supper together. But before the Last Supper, Jesus does something pretty unbelievable. He takes off his robe and he wraps a towel around his waist. And the scriptures tell us that Judas, who betrayed Jesus, he was the one who betrayed Jesus. And Judas was there and Jesus knew Judas's betrayal. He already knew the evil that was in his heart. And still, Jesus wrapped that towel around his feet. And with hands that would shortly be pierced and nailed to a cross, he kneels down and he washes his disciples' feet. That's radical love. In verse 14 through 16, it goes on and it says, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Jesus shows us what radical love looks like, and then he calls us to go and do the same. The second practice that we're called to that I see here is radical generosity. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul tells us, you will be abundantly enriched in every way as you give generously on every occasion. For when we take your gifts to those in need, it causes many to give thanks to God. So what's happening here is that we are enriched. Jesus fills us up so that we can give generously to others. And the, the work of that, the result of that radical generosity is thanks to God. It just points all the glory back to God. Now, when we talk about generosity, oftentimes we think about just financial generosity, and that absolutely is the mark of a follower of Jesus, that we are generous with our money, right? But that is not the only kind of generosity. That's not the only way to practice radical generosity. In fact, I would say that if the only way that you are generous is with your money, there's, there's further generosity that Jesus is calling you to. Recently, Joel and I went out to dinner with Troy and Laura Eggers, who are members of our church. Troy is on the worship team. He wasn't up here today, but oftentimes you see him up here. And Troy and Laura are just a little bit ahead of me and Joel in the parenting game. And they've raised three amazing kids. So we were out to dinner with them, just trying to kind of soak up their wisdom when it came to parenting. And we were just talking, having a really good time. And Laura said something that really stuck with me. She said, you know, we always tried to make our house a place where our kids' friends felt safe, felt welcome, felt seen. We wanted our kids' friends to know that our house was a safe place for them. And I thought, you know what, that's like outside of the box, generosity. That took a lot of intention. Nobody could ever 
pay them back. The kids aren't going to do anything to pay them back, right? Jesus says, don't just lend to people who can give you something in return. No, you're going to give when you can't ever expect to get anything back. So when we think about radical generosity, let's think about more than just our money. Let's think about our possessions, about our homes, about our time, right? About our, our skills. What are you good at that somebody else in the world needs? That's radical generosity, and that's what we're called to. And then the third practice that I see in this section of scripture is radical mercy. Radical mercy. In Colossians verse three, or chapter 3, verse 12 through 14, we are called to this kind of radical mercy. It says, since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, Make allowances for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. If you are a follower of Jesus, we have been shown such radical mercy that the only response to that is to turn around and show it to others. Those are the calls for the people of Jesus. Those are the practices for the people of Jesus. Radical love, radical generosity, and radical mercy. Jesus takes a little bit of a sharp turn next. He's been teaching. He's been explaining the kingdom of God. He's been telling us how to treat one another, how to live in relationship with one another. And then he kind of takes this sharp turn, and he starts talking about trees, about fruit from different trees. And so I was, as I was studying, I was like, Okay, help me, Lord, pull back and understand, like, how does this all fit together? What are you, what are, what's the heart of what you're getting at? The next thing that Jesus starts talking about here is the pathway towards integrity. I want to read to you out of um, Luke 6. This is 43 to 45. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, a good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. A tree is identified by its fruit. Figs are never gathered from thorn bushes, and grapes are not picked from bramble bushes. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart, and an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart. Integrity is simply being the same on the inside that we are on the outside being the same person in public and in private. What we believe, what we say we believe, and the way that we actually speak and act and treat other people should be in alignment. That's what integrity is. And that's what Jesus is talking about. He's spent all this time teaching about the kingdom of God and about how to treat people. But then he says, look, it's not going to work for you to just try some behavior modification. That can only take you so far. It's not going to work for you to just, you know, fake it till you make it. At some point, what is in your heart is what's going to come out. So there has to actually be a radical transformation within us, and that radical transformation is Jesus. It is giving ourselves and our lives over to Jesus, and the fruit of that is integrity. We become on the outside who we are on the inside. They're the same thing. And at first, this can feel a little bit like, ooh, but here's the thing. Jesus 
He's such good news. The gospel is such good news. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, we're told that this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old has gone and the new has come. You don't have to fake it till you make it because you are a new person when you start following Jesus. In Romans 8.29, the good news continues. We're told that for those whom he foreknew, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. We are being conformed to the image of Jesus. As we walk with him, he's doing a work of sanctification in us. We are becoming like him so that we are able to walk in integrity, something that we cannot do on our own, but that as we continue to walk with Jesus, integrity will be a mark of our life. When I look back at my own life, I can identify so many moments, so many times when I lacked integrity. In every single one of those times, I can trace it back to seeking after one of those priorities of the world. This is why, for the Christian who has prioritized success above everything else, let's say they're in a job where like, they have whatever success means to them and they're holding on to it with all they've got, and something happens in that job, and they are faced with a decision to either lie and hold on to the job that equals success, or to tell the truth and risk the job. Well, for the person who success means everything, there's one choice, and it's to lack integrity and lie. But for the Christian who has recognized the invaluable Jesus, the invaluable gift of knowing Jesus, if you lose the job, you're not ruined. You've still got Jesus. So a lack of integrity is almost always the result of seeking after one of the priorities of the kingdom of the world. The final thing that Jesus shows us in this teaching is the power of obedience. Jesus wraps up this message. He wraps up all of this that he has packed in to help people understand the kingdom of the, of the, of the Lord, to help them understand who Jesus is and who he calls us to with this story that reminds us of the power of obedience. This is Luke 6, 46 to 49. It says, So why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? I will show you what it's like when someone comes to me, listens to my teachings, and then follows it. It is like a person building a house who digs deep and lays the foundation on solid rock. When the floodwaters rise and break against that house, it stands firm because it is well built. But anyone who hears and doesn't obey is like a person who builds a house right on the ground without a foundation. When the floods sweep down against that house, it will collapse into a heap of ruins. The encouragement for us, the power of obedience, is that the floodwaters are going to come. Right? In John 16, Jesus tells us, in this life, you are going to have troubles. The floodwaters are going to come. The storms are going to rage. But if you build your life on the firm foundation of the teachings of Jesus, on the person of Jesus, then when the floodwaters come, you're not going to be ruined. But don't be like the foolish builder who listens, who hears the words of Jesus, and then walks away and builds his house on the, on the sand so that when the flood of waters come, the house is destroyed. No, we want lives that are well-built, 
that are solid. Maybe today you've been walking with Jesus for a long time. Maybe today the invitation for you is to take inventory, to consider where your heart is seeking after the priorities of the world. Where does power, comfort, success, and recognition have a tight hold on your heart? Maybe for you today, you need to consider your relationships. Where in your life is there a person who needs your radical love, your radical generosity, or your radical mercy? Or maybe today, you aren't walking with Jesus. You have never recognized what he did on the cross. And you know exactly what I was talking about when I was talking about that empty disappointment, that satisfaction that is gone in a moment. Maybe today you know exactly what I mean when I say that. And the invitation to you is that Jesus is so much better. What he has for you and what he offers you and the life available to you, it's so far beyond the, the watered-down, selfish version that the world gives us. It's not easy. It'll be one of the hardest things you've ever done, but it's better. It's so much better. So we are going to go back into a time of worship. We are going to prepare our hearts for communion. But as we do that, before we take the communion elements today, make space. Let's just get real with God. Let's allow him to sift our hearts and to show us where he wants to call us into something so much better. Not to bring shame, not to bring shame, but to bring the conviction that leads to freedom. Conviction because God loves us and he desires for us to know him in all of his fullness. Jesus died and came back to life to invite us in to his relationship with the Father. We are children of God. We are part of God's kingdom. Every spiritual gift that Jesus has is available to us. We just have to walk in it. So let's do that right now as we go back into worship. I'm gonna pray for us and whatever you need to do, whether you need to kneel before the Lord or raise your hands or just sit quietly, Let's be real with God for these next few moments. And then when we take communion, let's do it in the full confidence that we are part of God's family. Let's pray together. Jesus, you know the depths of each one of our hearts. You know the places where the priorities of the kingdom of the world have a tight grip on us. You know exactly the people in our life who need our radical love and radical generosity and radical mercy. God, you know if maybe we're the people today who need your radical love, your radical generosity, and your radical mercy. And Jesus, you have made it available to us. Father, as we enter into this time of worship, I just ask for every heart to be open to what you want to do. Let us uh, just open the, the prisons that we've been stuck inside of our own making and allow your grace and your mercy to free us into the life that you've called us to. We love you. We worship you. We praise you right now. Amen. Let's just sing together about the wonderful gift that he gave us.
Upon a hill far away Stood an old rugged cross The emblem of suffering and shame And I love that old cross Where the dearest and best For a world of lost sinners were slain So I cherish the old rugged cross Till my trophies at last I lay down And I will cling to the old rugged cross And exchange it someday for a So despised by the world Has a wondrous attraction for me For the dear Lamb of God Left his glory above To bear it to dark Calvary
Team here today, and uh, we're going to step into communion now and continue our worship. Uh, for those of you at home, if you need a last chance to run to the fridge, now's the moment. Uh, for those of you here, if you didn't happen to get the elements as you walked in, just raise your hands and we'll make sure you have that. Uh, Kristen, thank you. What a wonderful message, and what a perfect time to take communion and take inventory, uh, reflect on our participation in the kingdom of God. and. Communion is, is not a mystical ritual that we perform. It's a reflection of our common unity with Christ and with each other. Uh, so as we uh, partake in this today, I just ask all of us to reflect in our hearts, take a moment to uh, consider how you are operating in the kingdom of God and uh, take this time to reflect on what Jesus has done for us. Um, so as Jesus, the master discipler, brought his closest friends, his disciples, as Kristen was referencing, together for the Last Supper, uh, he brought them together. And in his humanity, he was in despair, knowing what he was about to go through. But in his divine spirit, he knew that this was what he had to do. And he paid the price. He covered uh, us with his blood and his body. And as he brought them together in this moment of intimacy with his closest disciples, and they were breaking the bread, uh, he said, the Lord Jesus, on that night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So let's take the bread. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the blood of the new covenant. In my blood do this. Whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. So let's take the cup. We're going to enter into one more song of worship. Uh, as we do that, I encourage you again to uh, take a Take the time to reflect in your hearts and worship God. Pour out your hearts to him. And uh, after that, we'll final uh, with, with a prayer and let you go. So one more song. Amen. If you'd like to stand, you can. We're just going to sing again about just God's amazing grace and reflect on that and just thank him for it.
was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved how precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed my chains years ago you laid down your life Lord that as we reflect upon this cross that God it's such a reflection of the love and just faithful patience that you have for us Lord you've transformed something that was representative of death 
turned it into life. God, you do that in each and every one of our lives. Lord, we're so grateful to you, so thankful. God, as we go about our week, we pray that your presence would be with us and that as we interact with our families and our coworkers and our friends, that we would represent the kingdom of God, Lord. God, that we would be the light of the world and salt of the earth. Give us the spirit of love. Help us to love others as you love us and just display that radical generosity and radical love to those around us, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity to gather here as a congregation. Lord, just ask for your blessings. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.